morning. So this past Wednesday, um, I usually work from home on Wednesdays, and I was just about to sit down to do some writing, and I decided to get up and get myself a glass of water, um, and I wanted to throw a couple ice cubes in the water. So I went to the kitchen, and I, we have one of those old fridges that... Um, well, I guess it's not. It, it is an old fridge. Not all old fridges have this, but it's got the fridge part on the bottom and then the freezer part on the top, right? So there's two, two handles. So I go to, you know, pull out the ice cube tray, drop it in my glass of water, and I don't know what happened. Um, my son's been waking up at 5.30 in the mornings this whole week, so maybe I was just overtired. But I went to go and put the ice cube tray back in, and as I opened up the door, my hand slipped... And the door handle hit me smack dab in between my eyes and on my forehead. And my first reaction, admittedly, was a bit of anger. And I had to hold back from a few choice words that only the dog would have heard. But I did happen to slam the freezer door a little bit more aggressively than I normally would have. And a couple thoughts occurred to me in that moment. One, how easy it is for me to react negatively to something fairly trivial. And secondly, having spent a lot of time in today's text, how Jesus was tempted in every way to sin, and yet he didn't. I reacted fairly dramatically to my own clumsiness, but how would Jesus have responded? Really, how would Jesus have responded in that moment? And then the thought occurred to me, it must have been really hard to be Jesus. It must have been really, this is what my Wednesday mornings are like, okay? It must have been really hard to be Jesus. I mean, we don't get a lot of instances in scripture that tell us Jesus was tempted, but we of course have that one big narrative of him being tempted in the wilderness with the devil and that one situation of them standing on top of the temple and the devil encouraging him to jump off, go, jump off the cliff, Jesus, and let the angels catch you. In other words, show your power, Jesus. Show off who you are. Prove yourself, Prove yourself, Jesus. Then people will truly love you and admire you. But he didn't. Every single one of us would probably have been tempted in some capacity or another to prove ourselves. But Jesus never did. Not once. And perhaps... This is the greatest temptation that we will ever face as followers of Christ, more than any other temptation, is the need to prove ourselves. The disciples certainly tried and, and failed quite miserably at it. We perhaps aren't so different. This is perhaps our greatest temptation. And I say that because, not because the other temptations aren't hard, but because this is the one that most regularly, for us, undermines the very gospel itself. And so this morning, we're going to be diving into the book of Hebrews again to look at a, a passage that's partly in chapter 4 and then partly in chapter 5 to see how some of this characteristic of Jesus, this, this sinless nature of Jesus, elicits a name, right? We're looking at the names of Jesus in this series, that a name that is absolutely essential for our understanding of, well, the gospel. Because after, you know, hitting myself in the face and connecting it with this passage, I must admit, throughout the rest of the day, I was so mindful, having compared myself to Jesus, I was so mindful of my own need for grace. 
And my hope for each and every one of us this morning, for each and every one of you, is that whenever you get hit in the face, you'll think of Jesus. So let's open up our Bibles today to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to go into chapter 5 and end at verse 10, okay? Chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it. He receives it when, he, when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who can save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, notice... Notice now in verse 14, right at the very beginning of this passage, there's an encouragement to hold firmly to the faith that we possess because of who Jesus is. It's why we're doing this series at all, right? We're looking at the names of Jesus in Scripture because we want to learn more about who he is, to allow the knowledge of Jesus to infuse and inform our understanding of who we are then called to be his followers. In fact, you really can't be a Christian or a follower of Christ if you don't understand who it is that you're following. And to understand Jesus as a great high priest, at least to the writer of Hebrews, seems to be a big deal. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know what the key idea there is? The most important thing, I think, in that, in that scripture passage? It's not that he empathizes with us. It's not that he understands weakness. It's not the fact that he didn't sin. It's this little phrase, in every way. In every way. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way. Think about that. If Jesus was tempted in every way, that means he was tempted to get unnecessarily angry at times. 
He was tempted to say something he shouldn't, tempted to think negatively about others or about himself. He was tempted to obsess over things that he can't control. How many of us have done that? He was tempted to think lustfully, eat gluttonously, yell at his disciples furiously when they still didn't understand his parables, which happened all the time. He was tempted into any kind of weakness that you can think of in his 33 or 34 years of life. You know what that means? First, there's two things. First, there is no temptation that you will ever face, no form of weakness that you will ever feel that Christ does not understand. No moment of fragility, no episode of undisciplined nature, no failure, no falling back into an old habit or inclination towards unhealthy or unhelpful behavior. He gets all of it. He gets it. Which means that secondly then, all of those moments of fragility or weakness that we feel are conquerable in Christ. And not only because the power of the living God now lives in you to strengthen you in those moments, but also because on a more foundational basis, Jesus not only gets it, but he also gives us the means by which all of our moments of fragility and weakness, the, the times where we just can't get it right, can be covered in mercy and grace. And that should always be our first inclination, is to know that every moment of fragility, every moment of weakness and brokenness is covered in grace and mercy, which is why the writer then says in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, this all may sound like a little bit of a bunch of theological jargon, but it's actually really practical once you flesh it out. When we are sensing a moment of weakness or we're feeling tempted to, to cause harm to someone else or even to ourselves or we're being tempted to make a decision that's really about proving ourselves and, and furthering our own will rather than God's will, the writer of Hebrews gives us something to do with that. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking this still doesn't sound very practical, but the practicality of this passage is dependent upon the prevalence of your prayer life. So I want to challenge you this morning to pay careful attention to what we're reading here in Hebrews and think deeply about these words as we go through some of these verses, talking about Jesus as our great high priest, because we're going to come back to that conversation, okay? To understand why it's necessary to see Jesus as our high priest, we need to ask the question, how does a high priest actually function in Scripture? What does a high priest do? Well, starting in chapter 5, verse 1, they are selected from among the priests, and they are appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, okay, to offer sacrifices for sin. That's what the high priest did in, in the Old Testament, in the days of the Old Covenant. When Moses was leading Israel, it was set up that his brother Aaron would be the official high priest. He was called by God to do that. And all of Aaron's descendants would then be the priesthood. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, so then you get the Levites in Scripture, who are the priesthood for all of Israel. But only one, is, only one individual was ever given clearance to actually be in charge of the altar 
itself, okay? We're talking the altar that's in the Holy of Holies. Imagine the, the tabernacle or the temple. In the center of it was the most holy place that was also known as God's throne room. So the altar where the sacrifices were made was also God's throne. It was his heavenly throne, throne room. And only one person was ever given permission to represent the people before God in this place. A people who needed cleansing and forgiveness, who knew that they weren't allowed or capable of stepping into or standing before God themselves because you can't stand before a holy God if you yourself aren't holy. It's just the way it works. It might feel a bit archaic for us to speak like this, but we need to realize that this was the only way that God could get across to his people how estranged they really were from him. Holy God, sinful people. Sin doesn't stand out unless you actually compare it to something holy. And the people would never actually understand the gravity of their own sin unless they were shown something greater. They wouldn't understand the chasm that existed between them and God. They wouldn't grasp the problem of sin unless God made a way for them to be ever so cognizant of it. That's where the high priest came in. Because as a high priest, you would serve as the bridge between God and the people. You would bring their brokenness and their repentant hearts before the altar and then receive the mercies of God in return. In other words, there is a, a universe-sized container of God's grace waiting to be poured out on the people. And you as the high priest have the key to opening up little bits of it at a, at a time. But even then, you can only get little bits. Because the reality is, you too are sinful. You're a place for people to bring their brokenness. You too are subject to weakness, as it says in 5 verse 2. But you in and of yourself cannot solve the problem of the people's sins. You can't fix yourself, you can't fix them as much as you would like to. And so the reality was that although this sacrificial system was very culturally applicable at the time and enabled God to communicate to his people how estranged they were from him, the problem is that the, the sacrificial system never ends because sinful people keep giving sinful sacrifices and the cycle just has to keep going. It never ends. It's only a temporary solution. But God had at least found a temporary solution for enabling a relationship to still exist between him and the people. Through the high priest, he could dwell among them provided that there was that mediation. As scholar N.T. Wright put it, the whole point of the sacrificial system was never, after all, about animals being killed or to punish people's sins so that they could enter God's presence, but to cleanse them of every trace of sin and death from the people and the sanctuary so that God could dwell among them. That's God's whole mission in Scripture, is to find ways that He can be among the people, that He can dwell among them. The blood of the sacrifice, right, says, acted as a kind of cleansing agent, like, like soap that takes grime and dirt off of our hands and bodies so that we can then be in contact with other people. The sacrifices washed the sin, symbolically, so to speak, and enabled God to be in contact with his people. But as I mentioned earlier, 
the system was ongoing. The cycle never ends. I, as an Israelite, would need to constantly and continually be ushered back into the courtroom of God's throne room year after year, specifically on the Day of Atonement, to offer repentance so that I can receive my year's worth of grace. That's how it worked. It was very transactional. There was no other option. I can't double up on my sacrifices to get ahead or offer a lump sum of money just, you know, to cover for the next few months. That's not an option. It's not how it works. No one at the time actually would have ever imagined anything different. There was no other option. It wasn't, there, there wasn't another option. The only way that you could be offered the whole container of God's grace was if a high priest showed up who could be flawless in his own character and also stand perpetually before the throne of God and perpetually offer a permanent sacrifice as atonement for you. But no human being had ever existed who could do that. Not ever. No one could do that. Except Jesus. Which is why the writer of Hebrews goes to such lengths throughout this letter to explain who Jesus is. Because in Jesus, we have a high priest who offered himself as a sacrificial lamb, perfect sac sacrificial lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, so that there was a sacrifice worthy enough and weighty enough to blow open the doors of God's grace and for the rest of eternity ensure that nothing, no sin, no failure, no moral fallout could ever close those doors again. No other sacrifice would ever be needed. And because he knows exactly what you go through, because he knows the very thoughts in your head, he knew what kind of sacrifice would be needed. He knew how far he'd have to journey into the very suffering depths of hell to ensure that you would never need to live under the burden of your brokenness ever again. You would never need to prove yourself to God ever again. Jesus stands before the Father constantly advocating himself for you. You come beside him in your, in your muck and your grime and your brokenness, worrying about what the Father is going to say, and all Jesus has to do is put his hand on your shoulder saying, this one's mine. For the Father to then look at you and say, welcome my child to my throne of grace. Come forward with confidence. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that we can come forward and approach God's throne of grace with confidence because this is the kind of response we can expect to receive every time. Every time. We don't have to come with a burdened heart, fearing what he'll think, worried about what he'll say, running over all of our failures in our mind and beating ourselves up for our own mistakes. 
in all of our worship, in all that we do, but especially in prayer, one of the most powerful things we can do is to picture ourselves actually standing in the throne room of God before the Father with Jesus standing next to us. Because that's actually what we're doing in prayer. We're coming before God. We're not talking to anybody else. We're coming before God with our prayers, knowing that we can utter them with confidence because of the man who is standing next to us. Because of the Son of God who gave himself as a sacrifice so that we would never have to do it again. Prayer is coming into the throne room to speak with the one who's actually in charge. Which is why I said earlier that how we embrace this text is dependent upon how mature our own prayer life actually is. Coming before the throne means nothing conceptually unless we actually do it, unless we actually want to come before his throne. Jesus himself, as the writer put it in verse 7, had a fervent and, prayer, and, and continual prayer life. In other words, prayer permeated his whole existence. Everything he did was built on and based in prayer. And when I say the word prayer, we should always instinctively think it's relationship. Prayer isn't something we do. Prayer is a relationship that we have with the Almighty God who has invited us to be in relationship with him, right? So even when we're in a group of, of people praying, we're not thinking about them, <laughs> We're not talking to them. We're talking to the one with whom we want to be in relationship with above everyone else. We're talking to the one who's actually in charge, coming into God's throne room confidently and submitting ourselves to his will. Because as Christ himself experienced, encounters with God are what enable us to truly live our lives in the freedom that scripture speaks of. And that's my greatest concern for us this morning is that we actually don't live this out because we don't understand it. The freedom that Scripture speaks of, knowing that the container of God's grace has already been poured out because of the sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice of Christ. Let's just do a little exercise here. Think, think about this. Actually imagine this. If you need to close your eyes, feel free. Think about this. Imagine this and ask yourself. If you were to step into God's throne room right now, okay, just imagine it. You're standing before God. You've got Jesus standing next to you. Is it confidence that you feel? How do you feel? Is it confidence? Or do you maybe feel a bit hesitant? A bit timid? Like a fish out of water? Fearful maybe? A little worried about what he'll say? A lingering thought in your mind that he might not actually accept you? What is it that you feel? It makes sense that we would be a little bit worried about what he would say. It's the way that the rest of the world runs. So this is kind of our default, default mode of thinking, default way of thinking. We don't often think about this, but we actually spend our entire lives performing, 
trying to please other people, trying to impress them. We lay awake at night, worried, wondering about how we'll do, if we'll succeed, if we'll pass the test. Some of us who are the more people-pleasing types constantly worry about how others view us. Whether we said the right thing, rolling conversations over in our mind, did I say that right? Did I do, what are they thinking? What must they be thinking? What, they, what they're telling other people? La, la, la. Some of us even worry as much, well, we may not even worry as much about what others think, but we worry about what we think. We condemn ourselves. We critique ourselves all the time, right? I'm my own worst enemy. We say that all the time. I'm not good enough. I messed up. We beat ourselves up for making mistakes as if we haven't let any of the grace of God permeate into how we live out our lives. We critique everything. We, we constantly put ourselves back into the courtroom, back on trial, waiting for the verdict that says we're okay to keep going waiting for the check mark that I've done enough to ensure I'm still receiving God's grace. We live often in an Old Testament kind of way, in an Old Covenant kind of way, without even realizing it. Things turn out well for us and we assume it's because we prayed enough. We worked hard enough. We sacrificed enough. We were good enough. We did what we were supposed to do. And God blessed our efforts. Phew, we say. The law worked. A plus B equals C. I do this, and I do this, and it equates to this outcome. But then we just do it all over again. And when things don't work out, when A plus B equals C doesn't work, we assume it's because we weren't good or faithful enough. And then the pressure is back on. Friends, with, with Christ as our high priest... We don't have to torture ourselves like this. We have been given full clearance to allow Christ's sacrifice, his advocating, his declaration of innocence to actually be a reality. Not just conceptually, but for real. Because there's no greater freedom for our minds, for our own spirits, for our souls, for our hearts, than to receive and live, actually live the freedom that is found in Jesus. We talk about this all the time. But I'm urging you this morning to ask yourself, do you really live like this? Do you really live in this freedom? The freedom that says, I actually don't need to prove myself. In fact, I don't even really need to think about myself. I don't always have to be right or be trying to get it right or, or wondering what it was that I did wrong. The spiritual journey, says psychologist Larry Crabb, is not about living as we should so that life works out as we want. That's the whole law of A plus B equals C. If I do this and this and this, I get this. That's not what it's about. In other words, performing well so that things work out in our favor is not what's communicated in Scripture. That's not the foundation off of which we live. Preacher pastor Tim Keller once wrote this, Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? In every other lifestyle or philosophy or religion, he says, people get their true self-image from being a good enough person. 
That's all I got to, I just have to be a good enough person. And then at some point I'll get confirmation that that was the right thing to do. But performance, performance, he says, leads to the verdict. That's how we live. It's, it's how most people live. All this means, he says, is that every day you're in the courtroom. If your performance leads to the verdict, every day you're in the courtroom. Every day you are on trial. But in Christianity, he says, it's flipped. The verdict leads to performance. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. Just just think about that for a second. Christ's perfect, sinless performance is imputed on you. That performance is given to you. That's how he sees you. You see, Keller says, the verdict is in. And now I perform, I live my life on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things to build up my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. Of course, Keller here is speaking about the spiritual journey and and sort of a spiritual resume. But if we understand that this is how God sees us, then that understanding of verdict before performance will impact everything else. That's why, that's why this needs to be the foundation of everything else that we do because it impacts everything else. It means that I can love my son simply for the sake of loving him because God loves me rather than loving him in the hopes that he'll turn out a certain way if I do A, B, C, D. I can do my job because I love doing it rather than obsessing over my levels of performance. We all do this. So the question is, since we've been given clearance to live like that, will we actually follow the advice of Hebrews and allow ourselves to in fact approach God's throne of grace with confidence to encounter a God who is waiting to sing his grace-filled verdict over us? Will we actually do that? Or will we remain slaves to an old system, keeping God at a distance, continuing to try to make life work through our sacrifices and hoping that it'll be good enough? Again, God's intention was never, as one scholar put it, to have a continuing round of sacrifices, to make us to live to make us live in this perpetual state of always having to do more, to be better, to give enough. As the writer of Hebrews says later in chapter 7, the former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God a better hope that actually enables us to come near to God. What God had established with Israel was good for that time and under those circumstances, but what God has established in Christ is so much better. He is a priest for us forever. As Psalm 110 puts it, Jesus' priesthood is eternal. He was always 
the mediator, in other words. He has always been the sacrificial lamb. And just like, if you know the story of Esther, just like the king of Babylon extended his golden scepter out to her and invited her to come without fear to his throne, Christ too has given us permission to be so confident, to be so bold, without hesitation, without fear of judgment. Before, it was only the high priest who could approach God. Now in Jesus, all of us are invited to come forward. And it's a treasure that I think for centuries we have immeasurably taken for granted. Perhaps it just feels too good to be true. As Eugene Peterson put it in the message translation, now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. Let's not do that. He is our great high priest. And we are his priesthood. Every single one of us. There is no other in-between than Jesus. And the mediation role that he plays for us, he's now empowered us to provide that kind of mediation to the world. In other words, we carry this gospel. We carry this good news of what he's done and how he's allowed us now to live. We carry this knowing that the pressure is off. We don't need to wash our hands ahead of time. We don't need our lives to be better. You don't need to be better. You simply need Jesus. That's it. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.